Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Is there moral hazard in this space in carbon removal? I don't really think there is. The oil and gas industry is then is that it's how much of a legacy industry there is will be determined by how much carbon we can remove. Ultimately, they have the money, they have the talent, they have the um, organizational structures to have a massive impact in this space. And maybe, maybe we need to be a bit more open to, to the roles that they play in this. Welcome back to Wicked Problems, a climate tech podcast that some of our listeners describe as delightfully unhinged. I'm your host, Richard Delavan. I'm so delighted to be able to tell you I'm joined today by our new co-host, Claire Brady. Claire, welcome to Wicked Problems. Thank you, Richard. It's great to join you here today. Tell us a little bit more about you and why you're passionate about the subject. Okay, so uh, anybody who knows me would sort of say I'm basically a sustainability geek, uh, for want of a better description, having worked in and around sustainability consulting for multiple years. And I'm really drawn to the clean tech and climate tech sector because that for me is where the most exciting innovations are happening. And it's probably where we're going to find the solutions that we need if we're really going to create an equitable and sustainable future. Um, So it's an absolute pleasure to join you as co-host. This gives me the opportunity to really geek out, let's be honest, uh, to meet some of the people that I've been following and watching their journeys and really ask them some some hopefully tough questions and dig a little bit deeper into what they're trying to do. So uh, thanks very much for the invitation. No, we're so happy you could be here. And I think it is exactly the right time for this sector. Um, PwC just released its State of Climate Tech report yesterday for this year. Um, I know it in the UK version of it that Our previous guest, Christian Hernandez from 2150, features prominently in the commentary. Um, And also the the report kind of details how much climate tech now takes up of investment capital from VC and PE, growing to almost 11% of all money deployed, uh, although it's been even to the year of a down year in terms of 40% year and year decline in, in investment. But as an overall percentage, it's a place where so many new organizations, first-time investors are going into the space, both because they see the need for impact and because they see the opportunity for significant returns uh, as, the, as the economy transitions to decarbonize. Um, so it's been a very busy week, Claire, in terms of a lot of news flow. We're 40 days out from COP28 in Dubai, 
to some minds controversially to be helmed by Dr. Sultan Al-Jaber, uh, the CEO of AdDoc, uh, although to be fair, also the leader behind their renewables venture in Mazdar. Um, and we've got really fantastic interviews that we're going to be hearing after this chat, but um, in both the carbon removal and the carbon markets space. Um, but it was a really big news day today, the day we're taping on the 18th, uh, when we saw, in fact, a recommendation about phasing out the entire GAT network here in the UK. Tell us about that. Well, yeah, it's a really exciting piece of news. I mean, anybody who's operated in the space of trying to think about how we're going to heat our buildings going forward knows that the future is electric. It is that simple. There's been some diversion tactics around with what role will hydrogen play, but the reality is it's going to have to be electric and heat pumps are going to play a major, major role. And We've seen in the news is quite often quite a bit of negative pushback. Will they work in the in in the colder climates of the UK? And yet anybody who's a real industry expert knows that that just isn't uh, an issue we need to worry about. So I think seeing the scale of potential ambition, we really need to be thinking about how do we do this rapidly and at scale? Um, it's just not really something that people are thinking about when they're thinking about the next development phase for their home and replacing their boiler. So I think there's a big piece of work to be done, educating people, creating the right infrastructure. We need engineers, we need, you know, contractors. It's just, it's a huge, sort of reminds me of like sort of post-war NHS. It's that scale of shift and transition that we need to see kick-started. Monumental task, certainly a, a perception that's been fed by incumbents in the industry. You know, we have this massive gas network, but now we've got this report from the National Infrastructure Commission. Uh, where its chairman came out today saying that we need to be having this 30 billion a year investments that ultimately will result in savings for each household and higher economic productivity, they say. But we can anticipate this is coming in after the party conferences, after the prime minister has kind of dramatically reset on net zero commitments and trying to talk about being more pragmatic and maybe go a bit slower. In the same way the NHS maybe at, at the beginning certainly required a lot of arm twisting of incumbents to be able to come along. Um, I believe that uh, an Iron Bevan quote was that we will stuff the mouths of GPs with gold in order to get them on, on board as being part of the system. I mean, that, I guess but we're not really in a position to do the equivalent at the moment, are we? I'm not sure that anybody really is sitting around with bags of money to spend on anything, but actually anyone who operates in this sector knows that the longer you wait, you're not really saving any money. It's going to cost money at some point. We literally had an engineer around to do some work on our house. And I asked him, he's a plumber. And I said to him, heat pumps. And he's like, oh, no, no, I don't think it's worth the while. You know, isn't it going to be hydrogen? And so by dithering, right. we are causing more problems for ourselves. And when you contrast that with, say, for example, in France, where it is completely normal for heat, heat pumps to be advertised, and there's a whole advertising campaign based on a child being super excited to unwrap a, their brand new heat pump. Um, so it's almost like in the UK, we sort of see it as this completely foreign, weird technology. And yet it's, it's not. It's, you know, so it's, it's not just money that we need. It's actually a complete shift in attitude because I think there is a real big pushback that sort of going, we can hedge our bets and we don't actually have to make a decision where the reality is we need to make a decision, we need to invest and we need to go all in and we need to do that now. The heat pumps is obviously one of the big drivers that's putting more um, kind of demand onto the power grid. If, if we do go that way, the IEA, the International Energy Agency, 
earlier this week issued a report about the need for investment in the grid. You know, thing that we've heard a lot in the last few weeks about the idea of trebling renewable generation capacity, wind and solar, backed up by storage by 2030. Um, and we're also seeing some of that language started to be coming out from the people organizing COP28 in Dubai. Are, you know, are you hoping that'll be the, the best we can hope to achieve as being an international commitment coming out of COP? How are you analyzing that? I mean, if we can get commitment and actually see that sort of lockdown, then great. I mean, the reality is the industry is going to move in that direction anyway. All of the projections that have previously been made about the pace and scale that solar is going to grow at have been absolutely not blown out of the water, let's be honest. So I think there is enough momentum in the industry that is pent up, pent up demand for that. I think, again, it comes back to trying to do this in in the right way. You know, if we are so focused on generation and worrying about how the grid will cope with this additional capacity requirement and not thinking about storage at the same time and making sure those storage projects are coming through, we might end up having to develop too much infrastructure that ultimately we don't need. So it's about trying to get that big picture because the way we do this in the UK at the moment is not in a strategic way. It's almost like a first come, first serve. There's projects sitting in the queue that don't have land rights that are not ever going to happen. They don't have planning necessarily, and they're blocking it for other projects that are more developed. So, you know, we need to take a step back and actually look at the whole problem and actually try and sort it out properly. You know, and coming back to the, the heat pumps, and the extra demand for electricity, you know, that rolling that out, absolutely the right decision. But we also need something on the same scale for how we address retrofitting the majority of homes, which actually are the leakiest in Europe. Um, and there've been various attempts over various governments to do that. And they still actually, no one's really squared that circle and worked out how do we create a better system for helping home owners invest in the retrofitting measures that they need to. Um, so yeah, big challenges, but it needs some big thinking. So one of the other bits of mood music that we've heard now, increasingly part of the conversation leading up to COP28, um, and perhaps some people have associated this with the identity of the president-designate of COP is coming from a, a, a country that's it, it's founded its economic development on petroleum resources. Um, heading also the CEO of its national oil company, um, but carbon capture and carbon markets, uh, whether it's carbon removal or as point source on the capture side, and then, you know, the kind of the article six under cop, you know, kind of trading systems, the voluntary carbon markets, these are, these also seem destined to be featuring very heavily in the conversation in the run up to and at cop itself. We're about to hear from some terrific guests one of which is the CEO of a company in the carbon removal space. Another is one of the leaders in kind of carbon markets, as well as uh, a special guest from the, the Startup Coalition talking about the policy environment, how that's changing. But as somebody who is a sustainability geek, I mean, do you have like an allergic reaction when you hear people talking about carbon markets and carbon removal? Is it basically all distraction or, or how should we think about it? Oh, yeah, so it's funny you should say allergic reaction. I mean, there is sort of almost a sense of like, uh, don't let's not just jump to that without addressing where we've actually got the ability to stop emissions at source. You know, and that was always the, the strategy that we would take in a sort of consulting mindset is where you can shift to electric and it's renewable you know, generation absolutely have to do that. But some of the way that the emissions happen, they're so complex 
they're so embedded in value chains or they are in industries where right now we don't have that technology. And even if you go down the route of science-based targets, which is sort of looking at how do we actually achieve that 1.5 degree pathway, there's a recognition that there's potentially 5 to 10% of emissions that we may, may just not be able to reduce. So there will be a role to sow. So yeah, I think at some level we have to to engage with that if that's where the money is. But I think if it's if it's a route to nowhere other than a fig leaf for business as usual, then then you'll see me campaigning to say, no, that's not the right thing. Excellent. Well, I've, without further ado, we'll, we'll start by introducing our, our first uh, interview with Jim Mann, the CEO of Undo, uh, the startup that's only been around for a year, but a tremendous success in getting pilot project underway. Um, and so here is our conversation with Jim Mann. I'm delighted to be joined today by Jim Mann, the founder and CEO of the UK's own Undo Carbon Removal, which removes carbon through enhanced rock weathering. Undo is just over a year old, but they've already had a tremendous success in establishing themselves a hot company, a hot market. Earlier this year, Undo raised $12 million in a round led by Chris Sackas, Lower Carbon Capital, already boasts Microsoft and Stripe amongst its customers, and was at Climate Week NYC, and last week sponsored a conference about enhanced rock weathering at the University of Edinburgh. So good morning, Jim. Thanks for joining us. Good morning. Thanks for having me on. First of all, just to explain for, for people who are not familiar, what is an enhanced rock weathering? So it's an increase in the rate of a natural cycle, which is a rock weathering cycle. That's what's balanced our climate for the last um, millennia through history and um, pre-human times. And what happens is the CO2 and water um, combine to form a weak carbonic acid. That reacts with silicates, typically silicate minerals that removes the CO2 from the atmosphere and, and plants it. So what we do is we increase the surface area of that rock, so we grind it up, and then we spread it out on soil where you've got more CO2, and it removes CO2 much quicker. So basically, we remove CO2 from the atmosphere to try and tackle climate change by applying it to agricultural land. One question I suppose is that can't we just plant a trillion trees? So, so I think we should be planting trees, first of all, first and foremost, um, in massive quantities and restoring our ecosystems. And the problem is that it's a one hit. Once that system comes to its peak, that's as much as you can store. Whereas mineralization is effectively infinite. So we can continue to scale. I started off with tree planting and peatland restoration, as, as, as you're aware, and left that behind. Or, or, or we, I still do it. And I still think it's an important ecological solution. But um, I, I moved to weathering because... I don't think that we've got enough land on the planet that at two degrees of warming, which I'm pretty certain we're on for um, as a very minimum, then a lot of that land that we're planting trees on today will become unsuitable for trees. We'll be at very high risk of forest fires or, or natural disasters of other types, landslips and uh, flooding. And therefore, I don't see it as a credible carbon removal pathway because you can't be sure that that carbon is going to be stored as an ecological restoration, and we desperately need that for biodiversity, we must be planting trees, we must be restoring our ecosystems. You were in New York a couple of weeks ago for Climate Week. Um, obviously, New York itself has been back in the headlines for all the wrong reasons in terms of flooding. Were they worried about the general resilience of even a city like New York to you know, combat the uh, extreme weather events that we're seeing more frequently? No, I don't think they were. I think it's... I think our news cycle is so short now that these things move through. I think we we are very much 
the, the, the frog in the, in the water being heated up. We, we don't seem to notice. Um, it's like, this has become just weather and it's like, this isn't weather. This is extreme weather and it's following predictions that we expected in terms of temperature. This suggestions that the system might be less resilient. So we're going to see more impacts at lower temperature rises, but it's, it, I, I don't think people are waking up to it. We're, we're, we're sleepwalking into this at the moment. And do you think that makes the job of explaining the rationale and the need for carbon removal harder, particularly as we enter a phase where we're going from experimentation to ones where we have some scaled solutions that are trying to be deployed, getting government support in some cases from the IRA and the states or from other packages around the world? Is maintaining that sense of urgency, is that going to be difficult, do you feel? Or do you feel like there's going to be enough support amongst corporates and governments? to be able to continue the work that you and other people in carbon removal are doing? I think it's difficult to say. Um, the, the U.S. government brought out their first federal procurement plan last week. It's very small, $35 million, but it's a first ever federal procurement plan for carbon removal. Um, I don't think there's any questions about whether we need CDR anymore. The IPCC is pretty unequivocal about it. Anybody who's close to climate and working in climate knows we've got to have carbon removal. We, we simply are not going to do this. We're not turning the, the ship around quick enough when you look at reductions and reductions must come first. We must be doing reductions well, or, or simultaneously now, but we must be doing, we must be doing both. We're going to have to reduce the amount of carbon we're putting out. We're going to have to take a whole load of it out. It's in the trillions of tons put into the atmosphere. It's just a staggering amount of CO2 was released. We're going to have to try and get some of that back out. We're going to have to find scalable systems that will do that. Um, and we're going to have to make reductions. But we don't see the shifting off the list of top voter problems. It's it's all around the world. It's in the top five. And so governments have to do something. It would be nice to see that at number one around the world. I think it will eventually get there. And, and governments are continuing to take some action. The CBAM regulation, the Gulf Border Adjustment Mechanism in Europe earlier in the year creates some of the toolkit that we're going to need. And we see the US government kind of getting ahead with the IRA. So I'm, depends what day you speak to me. Some days I'm pretty optimistic about it. Some days I'm pretty pessimistic about it, which I think is, is, is inevitable in this space. Right. One of the things you mentioned is that um, a two degree warming world, whereas I'm still hearing from people like the, you know, kind of president designate of COP28 or Fatih Barol from the IEA still talking about 1.5, whereas you talk to people who are closer to the science and they, they just sort of roll their eyes and go, well, that's a lovely target and it's moved things in the right direction. But A, it's not binary, but B, the idea that we're going to stay under 1.5 is laughable. Do you feel like that's going to impact this optimism, pe pessimism swing, which we all kind of go through if we study this space or work in the space, if there is a generalized recognition that 1.5 is simply unachievable? What effect does that have on a business like yours? It's, it's really hard to say what that discourse change does because it's going to have to change. We're, we're, we're going to pass 1.5 now. You, you can see how this will be manipulated already. Some people will be saying, we passed 1.5. 1.5 was supposed to be a complete disaster. We're still here. So what does it matter if it's 2, 2.7, which seems like the most likely scenario that we're on track for today, or, or even 3 degrees? Is it, is it going to be that bad? And... I, I think that we've got a whole lot of forces that I don't, I wouldn't profess to understand at all. And um, in terms of the 
the psychology, the behavioral sciences that's behind this, the, the, the vested interest in the space in maintaining the status quo for as long as they possibly can. I really would love to know how it plays because we should make most of it, but I think it's just going to be an uncertain environment for a long period of time. And how much do, do, mean, do we think it can scale? I mean, starting with the area you know best in terms of enhanced, enhanced rock weathering, but carbon removal more generally. ERW specifically, I believe, will be the fastest scaling pathway that there is through to 2030. Um, it's inherently easy to scale once you've got the science and technology. That's the hardest bit that we've been working on for the last couple of years. Um, with the science and, and technology that underpins it, it, it largely settles. Um, we, we should see this scale quite quickly. Um, this potential to be doing a gigaton by 2030, it depends on very much on how much momentum comes behind it in the, in the coming year or 18 months, because you can only multiply so quickly. So how fast can you get the flywheel turning early on is really important. It's total potential for ERW, about five gigatons at a reasonable, a reasonable cost, sort of, um, I think around the $200 per ton mark. And this is where we'll get into, you know, you can scale very quickly, even things like direct air capture, if you're prepared to spend $500 a ton. How much are we prepared to spend a ton for carbon removal becomes ultimately the question. Um, I think that some of the processes we're using today simply won't scale. Um, and I think there's a general acceptance of that. I, I also suspect that we're backing the wrong horses today and it will hamper us to some degree. Mm-hmm. Um, so too much investment going into some of the engineered solutions that aren't actually going to come down the cost curve where the open systems, which are harder to measure and monitor, um, can scale a lot faster. In terms of other pathways, we if we if the social license evolves and we do the right science to demonstrate the social license, some of the ocean pathways would be very, very scalable. Um, but we're too early to to say. So overall, I, I think the ten to twenty gigatons the IPCC suggests that we're going to need by mid century is absolutely doable. And it's at what what cost are we prepared to pay for that? And right. That depends on how much damage we're getting then from the other side of the equation, I suspect. What are the barriers to scale? I mean, cost, the different inputs of cost for different technology and different pathways, um, you know, depending on how much energy you're going to put in. And one of the things that terrified me most hearing, um, going back and listening to Akshat Rati talking to Vicky Hollow from Occidental, talking about the fact that they're going to build the DAC plants, but they're going to plug it into the grid, um, which was the most terrifying thing I'd heard but someone say about DAC. Um, but in terms of enhanced rock weathering, what's the secret sauce that you guys bring to that? What are the things that make it go faster and scale? And what are the things that are holding you back? So, so we're, we're designed for scale. The whole company is designed to scale. And we, we look at what parts of it do we need to provide and what parts of it can we outsource so we can maximize that, that, that rate to scale. And in terms of what needs to happen, ultimately, we need to buy the buy side of the market, the buy signal. And um, that's where it's going to come from. Um, how, how do we get this that this two-sided sort of piece going where there's enough demand pull that you can go quickly? The nice thing about enhanced drop weathering is, it, is there's no capex. You know, we are capex very light. We're using existing infrastructures. We use existing 
and rock daughters, we use the existing haulage industry, we use the existing agricultural industry, the existing equipment. It's just repurposing stuff that's already there. And in most cases, there's latency in there. So you, you've got, um, you've already got excess capacity in the haulage industry. You've got excess capacity in your, your spreading infrastructure and so on and so forth. So you're literally just taking that, that, that excess and um, scope to, 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 and, and redeploying it. So we can scale this very, very quickly. So the demand side is the side I start to think about. And how, how do we get this to a point where it's really robust scientifically, which is what we've been, been doing a lot of work on. Um, so people can have high, high confidence in, in what we're doing. And then we can deploy very, very quickly. And on that demand side, I mean, one of the things you, you kind of gestured towards earlier was, again, that the U.S. became the first government to pay for the contracts for carbon removal. Um, you know, the question really is who is going to pay, uh, to pay, even if we get to 200 a ton or $100 a ton being the, the kind of holy grail. That's the goal of the, the U.S. carbon negative shot from Department of Energy. And I think the XPRIZE, you know, version as well is how do you get there? Who is going to pay for this? So, you know, you've had some corporate buyers initially, but the, the same buyers who have gone to other kind of tech, you know, kind of pathways as well. When do we move from the marketing part of this organization to the treasury part becoming the buyer? So, you know, what's your view about how that change happens and when? So I, I think that I don't think the change is going to be quite as people are anticipating. So people are expecting this to happen within a company. I'm not sure that's going to be true. I think what we're seeing is it's the external forces that are going to actually do this. So it's your reinsurance industry and therefore your banking industry that will fill that gap for a period of time there's going to be a very significant opportunity for some of those organizations to um, be the early source of um, demand and to put the future credits on their balance sheet um, when they get very confident that this is going to be a supply-constrained uh, market. And they'll make a huge amount of profit in doing that. And great, good luck to them, because if they can accelerate the market earlier, then we need that to happen. And, and I've, one of the things I've always said is we need the ridiculous capitalists. We don't design this in the industry to track the ridiculous capitalists. We will not have enough um, money to scale at the speed that, that, that ultimately the climate demands. So we need to embrace that. And I think that's how it'll be solved. I think it'll move only when the regulators start to move. To be fair, the regulators until CBAM, they didn't really have the tools. You are going to see a very different system in the US to that that we'll see in I suspect, where we're high taxation. Um, high services, if you like, and U.S. tends to be low taxation and, and people take care of themselves more, things like medical care, for example, and things like that. I think the same will be true here. I think the EU will try and introduce a carbon tax um, off the back of the, the ETS. They will need a scalable, um, permanent, and reasonably priced supply of carbon before they can regulate in that sort of way. That's what I believe in hunting the weathering will bring them for the first time. Terrific. One of the things that I think we've, we're seeing this week um, is this conversation going around around so-called mitigation deterrence. So, you know, you've said all the way through your conversations, our conversation today, and at any other time I've heard you speak, you know, as you hear people from Climeworks or you hear people from Heirloom talking about the same thing, which is, the, you know, the rhetoric around we need to keep emissions reductions as the priority. Um, but this week in Abu Dhabi, at ADAPEC, the big oil and gas conference, we see carbon removal, even more than CCUS, being the hot topic, uh, something the industry is really, really pushing. 
And I think that most observers look at this and go, well, surely that's just trying to extend the life of and reduce the urgency for the phase out of fossil fuels. Um, so what's your view about, is there moral hazard in this space in carbon removal? So I would actually say, I don't really think there is. Um, I think that we are at a point now where the oil and gas industry is it, it is in decline and is in its deficits. Um, we, we know we have to transition. I don't think there's any credible politician or person anywhere in the world that doesn't accept that we have to, to reduce. How much of a legacy industry there is will be determined by how much carbon we can remove. So if they're clinging on to those little bits, then, then, then that's fine. Um, we will need or we will want to continue to use oil and gas as a transition energy. We are seeing what I believe are genuine investments from some of the oil and gas companies now in renewables as they try and transition to become energy companies. There's some that are buying up the assets that they're selling as well and going the other path. So there's, there's going to be a bit of a mixture. But the way I, I, I think about this is it's great that the oil and gas companies are talking about this. Great that it's on their agenda. These are some of the biggest balance sheets in the world. They are some of the organizations with the most free cash flow in the world. If they start investing in this and they decide they can make money through clearing up their own pollution, should we put them out in the cold for that? I'm not sure we should. I think we should be uh, an, an open an open church and uh, accepting all comers who are going to help us solve the problem ultimately. They have the money, they have the talent, they have the... Um, organizational structures to have a massive impact in this space. And maybe, maybe we need to be a bit more open to, to the role that they play in this. When you come to, to some of the greenwashing stuff they're doing, some of the behavior in the media, I think it's abhorrent. And I would call them out for that every single time. And that's not acceptable, trying to, to muddy the science that is very clear on trying to, to create um, confusion totally unacceptable and we should call those guys out and we should make sure that, that that it's understood that they are not not being good good actors in that scenario but when it comes to can they help us to get more carbon out of the atmosphere sooner they certainly can they're willing to we should let them okay the the, the nightmare scenario is, is something amy jaffe from nyu was talking about on on a different podcast last month amy jaffe being a you know respected professor writes for the wall street journal all the time not exactly a, a hair on fire activist throwing orange paint on, on oil company buildings, stating as fact that one of the oil majors is going around peddling term sheets, you know, to get 1% of equity in return for having a veto on any future investment, which sounds an awful lot to her and to VCs she's spoken to as being a deal killer mentality that basically find a way to actually put your, you know, kind of spoke into different technologies as a way of potentially shutting them down. How can we have that balance of saying, we'll take the money, everybody should have a hand to the till, but if on the other side, they're still trying to talk in a way that delays things, and if they're, actually the same, if they're the same companies involved, how do we screw that circle? So, so there's, there's certainly a role here for government, and we're, one of the problems we're seeing in the UK is we've got a UK government at the moment who's determined to put more licenses out to get more tax money um, at a time when all, all the science says we don't need that. And they're not, 
they're not following the science in, in any way, shape or form. Um, and that means they're colluding effectively with oil and gas companies to, to open up more, more supply. Um, governments have a role to play in this. Um, and therefore individuals have a role to play in this. That's hard when media is owned by a small number of people. And I, and I understand that a complicated, comes a complicated, um, circle where media, government and oil companies are, are working together. They can create this information, but ultimately, um, we're, we're the customers. Well, we're still buying this stuff. Um, we can make choices that help. And I know I'll get criticized for saying that because the individual choices alone won't do this. We need, we need governments to act, but one of our individual choices as citizens in a democracy is how we place our vote. Um, and we should be thinking very carefully about that and sending a signal very clearly to our politicians that, um, what they're doing is not acceptable when this is not. Okay. So final question before we, we get to some recommendations, as we move from this period where, you know, we, over the last three years, we've had this efflorescence of different carbon removal pathways, getting a lot of attention, a lot of investment, um, a lot of expansion and a lot of support again, with people dipping their toe in the water with lots of different pathways in terms of some of the customers on the demand side. How do you, how do we move to a world where you're going to have to make maybe tougher arguments to compete for those dollars from Swiss Ray or from others in the reinsurance space? or others that might become on the demand side, um, you know, for your pathway and, and for undo versus DAC or BEX or other pathways, how, how should we expect that to evolve? Right now, everybody can be friends, but at some point we have to compete for, you know, some scarcity. So, so first of all, just on the premise of your question that there's been lots of money in this space, it's a tiny amount compared to what we know we need. So there's been some money available. It's not been at the scale that we should have had available if we were really serious about tackling the problem, and it still isn't. So, so we should we should be honest about that. And um, the in terms of of where should the money go, I, I think we still need it at the grassroots. We still need to look at other pathways. And um, I'm doing some interesting work at the moment on a, a concept, a novel concept of carbon removal that could be very very much more energy efficient than direct capture but similar, similar sort of process, which, which fascinates me that there's still these pathways. There's still a whole load of things we don't know that will come through yet. And in terms of how do we think about allocating those dollars, there's lots of different metrics you can use. And I think that ultimately the, the carbon will become um, table stakes. You'll have to remove carbon. You'll have to be able to make it clear that you have to remove carbon. The co-benefits will become really important. When you're looking at technologies, I think things like enhanced rock weathering that reduces emissions elsewhere in the supply chain, where we, we get a fertilizer benefit, we get a yield increase benefit and things like that in the field. I think that'll start to come through as really important. I don't think it matters regardless for ERW because we're five times cheaper than direct air capture. We're what 20%, 20 times less energy usage and we're a hundred times more scalable. The, the market will figure that out over time and, and the money will flow where it it needs to go and that's how I, I you know it's how capital is usually deployed and, and I think we've got very efficient models for deploying capital and there'll be people prepared to set the early risk on new technologies we need that there'll be people when they're looking for scale will pick out the things that can actually scale and can actually scale at a reasonable cost so 
I think the market's pretty well set to do that. Listen, thank you. You've been so generous with your time, Jim. I know you guys have a, a kind of offsite coming up and you need to prepare for that. But we like to end these conversations by asking, what are three things that you've read, watched, or listened to um, that changed your views on climate tech? An inconvenient truth is a really great, even though it's dated now, and I think is a really great way of just getting that, that overview of, of what's happening. And I really enjoy Michael Mann's work and New Climate Wars, how are people manipulating these messaging? Some of the stuff we've talked about, it gets very, very complicated. It really twists your mind and you come out knowing less than you thought you knew or realizing you know a lot less than you thought you did when you went into it. But I think it's really valuable. And the third one, very not, not specific at all, is, is finding the really engaged people on Twitter. Or, or X, I think we now have to call it. Um, people like Catherine Hayhoe, people who are having these debates day in, day out, who are really close to the technology, who have strong opinions and are debating it. And I think that they are very generous with their time to debate this in public. They get a lot of abuse for that. Michael Mann's another one, actually, that's worth, worth engaging with there. They get a lot of abuse from bots and climate deniers and they continue to use that platform and 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 state the science and consistently state the science and we'll debate the areas of science that aren't yet settled and that service to, to all of us is is amazing and I'm, I'm really grateful that they keep doing that in face of some pretty pretty horrid abuse i think we should all be grateful for those people who've been willing to put up with, you know, the kind of abuse that they've had to deal with in order to be able to continue and to engage and be in the discourse. So with that, again, I, I really want to thank you, Jim, for taking the time. Anything else you'd like to add before we, we sign off? Just just keep positive, keep the message and keep bringing people with us. And ultimately, we, we've got the technology and we can do this. We just need to be bringing more people on board. Thank you so much, Jim, and uh, have a great offsite. Well, Claire, I thought that was a really interesting conversation with Jim Mann. I'm so glad he could join us for that. And gosh, I mean, it's lots to take in. It's a sector and an area continuing to grow as it becomes a much bigger part of the conversation going into COP28 and beyond. The IEA's forecasts and the IPCC forecasts say that, you know, a third of the emissions that are, are need to be abated by 2050 will rely on technologies that are still under development. So we are seeing a lot of this experimentation, and I think we'll, we'll see a lot more of that. Claire, where can people find you? I say the best place is probably LinkedIn. So well, connect to me on there and follow me on there and in, in, engage and uh, point me in the direction of interesting innovations because uh, I'm always on the lookout for the next exciting thing. Fabulous. And we'll include, of course, include that in the show notes along with a link to the website where you could also find the newsletter, um, Wicked Problems, the text edition with some more information about some of the stories we've talked about today. Claire, thank you so much. So great to have you on board. Really excited about what we get to do together over the coming months. Absolute pleasure, Richard. Thanks for having me. All right. Take care. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.